Welcome back to another episode of the True Craft Podcast. Today's guest co-founded a brewery specializing in German-style beers who says they put the I back in beer. Of course, we're speaking with none other than Steve Holly from Kansas City Beer Company out of Kansas City, Missouri. Steve tells us about the background behind their authentic German-style beers, some insight into the supply chain issues going into 2022, along with a look into the effects, benefits, and challenges of a niche portfolio. All right, without any further ado, let's go on to the episode. Staring at that canning line really lit a fire in us. Beers for everyone in society. In my opinion, the world's greatest social uniter. There's no time in my life that I didn't think, oh, this would be a good time for a beer. All right. I want to welcome Steve Holly. Co-founder of Kansas City Beer Company to True Craft Podcast. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. How are things going in Kansas City these days? Oh, pretty good right now. Everybody's pumped about the Chiefs, so we're yeah. all rooting for a victory on on Sunday. But you get that every year, right? It's it's a norm now. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a much better time than the '80s. I'll say that for sure. But yeah, we're getting spoiled here. Yeah. For for some of our customers in New England, when it was the Tom Brady days in in Massachusetts, they always enjoyed that boost of sales. Yeah, the beer sales throughout January into February, also because it was a guaranteed. Well, I don't know. We got this thing going on now. People seem to take uh, the month of January off from drinking beer. I've had so many people. I had one yeah. person that works here is doing that. I said, "What are you doing?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's a known, it's kind of a known thing to take called do dry, dry January. But yeah. look, when you're, when your team is, when your team <laughs> is, is, go, is guaranteed to play four additional games, five additional games, it's always great for the alcohol industry. Yes. It does that hurt. It's a good thing. So, so give us a quick background about Kansas City Beer Company. So, uh, we were founded in 2014 and our, mission is to make authentic tasting German style beer mm-hmm. and serve it at the same freshness level you get if you were having a beer in a German beer garden. And we do that by importing all of our malt and hops. Uh, I feel especially with the malt, uh, the difference in the growing conditions, the terroir, if you want to call it that, between uh, Central Europe where it's cooler and wetter and the much drier, hotter uh, Great Plains uh, creates a different malt flavor. So we're trying to replicate uh, German flavors. So I think that's important. I'm not saying that domestic malt isn't good. It's it's uh, makes different beer and it's, it's a personal yeah. preference. I always say I'm a beer libertarian. You should drink whatever you want to drink and enjoy it. And then secondly, myself and our head brewer both attended brewing school at the Dermans Academy and in Munich, so we use very traditional uh, German brewing techniques. Uh, we brew with only four ingredients, according to the Reinheitsgebot. Uh, everything's naturally carbonated. We do most of our beers are decocted, decoction on the mashing program. We have uh, two tank cellar systems, so we ferment in a in, in one tank, and then uh, we actually lager our beer in a in a flat bottom tank in a traditional German style. Yep. So I got into this business. I am from a German uh, family ethnic background. My father still spoke 
German as a kid. I took German in high school, college. I majored, I studied German uh, for a semester in Hamburg, Germany. And of course, I was a college student and uh, enjoyed beer back then and got exposed to some good German beer. And I always had that interest in beer. And I started homebrewing uh, after college. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, probably 20 or 25 years ago, I was pretty certain I wanted to open a brewery someday. So I got busy. I, I started writing articles for magazines. Uh, I wrote or co-wrote two books with the Master Brewers Association. And I studied and passed the Institute of Brewing and Distilling's Diploma Brewer exam. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of a um, want to understand what I'm doing kind of a guy. So sure. I worked on all this stuff, uh, started working on a business plan two years before I retired. At 55, I took early retirement. Um, I'm originally from Kansas City. I grew up here, but I was I was working and living in Texas. So I took early retirement at 55, moved back here in 2013. And then a year later, we opened the brewery. That's an awesome story. I'm looking at my notes here, and it's funny because... I have a question about sourcing your materials. I have a question about tank time. I have turn time. Right. I have a question about horizontal versus vertical. Yeah. So you kind of hit on that and we'll go into that oh, sure. more detail. So I, I looked on the website. It was you and two other founders started it. So uh, my partner, uh, Jürgen Hager, he's from Bavaria. He's not, mm -hmm. a, not a brewer. I <laughs> like to kid Jürgen. Mostly what Jürgen knows about beer is he likes to drink it. Okay. But uh, he's... He's been great. Uh, he grew up there and, and so associated with, uh, and he understands beer and what tastes authentic and not, but uh, he's been great with sort of our menu and our tasting room and just a solid cultural understanding, which we like to project because we're representing that we make authentic German style beer. We also embrace the culture around beer in Germany, especially Bavaria. So we have uh, a beer hall like tasting room. We have a, a large outdoor beer garden mm -hmm. with uh, tables imported from Europe. Um, we have authentic German pretzels. We get sausages from two German uh, sausage maker, one in Wisconsin, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, what we try to do is keep it pretty simple and basic, but uh, somebody would recognize that this is the kind of food and beer you get if you were you're eating and drinking in Germany. It's so weird. Yesterday I was giving a webinar for the arrived point of sale software, and it was uh -huh. about the tap room, the tap room ecosystem. And it sounds to me like you guys have created an ecosystem, which the food, the beer, the experience all cultivate additional merch sales. They can, they cultivate additional beer to go sales and it insulates you from any sort of major risk because that's what an ecosystem does. It, it, it's inner, inner working parts that, that work together to, to help the greater good of the cause. And from what you're describing, it sounds that's exactly what y'all have done. I think so. We've got a very loyal fan base. We're in a midtown, older neighborhood. It's a walkable neighborhood. We're right next to a hiking, biking trail. Uh, right next to our beer guard so people can walk uh, to us. And so in, in typical European fashion, which I think is much more uh, social meeting, community meeting places, mm -hmm. uh, we get people from all walks of life, ages, genders, 
whatever, come to the beer garden, especially in the summertime. You'll see young families with kids in strollers, uh, families with dogs. The kids go out in the grass and play while the parents have an adult beverage and an adult conversation. Mm-hmm. But it's a very uh, kind of open communal atmosphere here, which I think you'd find in a typical German beer garden. And it's something that's not really often found uh, in the United States, especially with the whole kid thing. Um, sure. Germans have a little bit different attitude about drinking. Uh, social drinking is good, clean, family fun. And it, right. if you know what I'm saying, I'm not advocating oh, yeah. kids drinking, but um, there's not that stigma, I think, that gets attached yeah. to having a beer here in the United States. Right. It's certainly um, more taboo here than it is in, I think, all of Europe, but Germany especially. Yeah. Yes. Let's talk about sourcing your ingredients. Is there a U.S.-based supplier that is getting you your ingredients, or are you guys going straight to the source? So we, we import our malt from Kulmbach, Germany, from a maltster called uh, Irex, mm-hmm. and we do purchase directly from them. They are setting up a a warehouse distribution system here in the United States, but uh, we get uh, about two 40-foot ocean containers a month of, of malt from them that goes directly from the malting to us. We work primarily with a, a small family hop farm in the Hollertau, the Sites family farm, and we get the majority of our hops uh, from there. So yes, we, we get our, our hops and malt directly from the suppliers in Bavaria. And have you had any issues over the past couple of years with the supply chain? And, uh, and We have. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, I don't know, a year ago, probably, uh, we started getting some real long delays mm-hmm. uh, just due to the, I think everybody's aware of the, so many people are buying stuff from Amazon and China. There's a shortage of ocean containers and uh, freighters and and space at the docks for the ships to land. And then we kind of got through that, but then we saw a 50% increase in our shipping costs Mm -hmm. really went up. Uh, People buying boxes to put their Amazons or Amazon buying boxes to put the stuff in that they ship all over the world has put a uh, high demand on paper products. So our packaging went up. And so, and then just our meeting yesterday, we have two uh, shipments of malt that are waiting outside the port at Newark, New Jersey, that can't dock because they're backed up. So uh, again, we're, we may look at a slight shortage, but we, we've started keeping a larger inventory. And that's one of the expect, expensive things about importing the malt is uh, you have to keep uh, more inventory on hand simply because there are these more frequent uh, supply disruptions. Right. And then on top of all that, this affects domestic brewers to their terrible barley harvest in both Europe and the United States this year. So people are seeing large increases in the in the cost of malt right now, both domestically and internationally. Okay. I did not know that. You, the I guess that wasn't um, sexy enough news to hit Brewbound yet. <laughs> <laughs> Bad harvest. They talk yeah. about the can shortage and they talk about everything else scandalous, but wasn't wasn't made aware of that. Well, I, we I was decided we were we only bottle right now. We started bottling about seven years ago, and uh, at that time I wasn't didn't really trust the small canning line mm-hmm. technology, and it's it's improved greatly. And so cans are 
a popular package, especially for craft beer. So we wanted to get into that. And uh, right now it's a little dicey because cans are so expensive. I don't, right. we probably can't produce beer at the same cost as a, as a bottled beer. And in addition to what you said, the supply uh, is uncertain because there's such a high demand created by the uh, seltzer industry, industry, particularly. And then COVID uh, had more people buying beer to take home and the preferred packages during this pandemic has been a 12 pack or an 18 pack of cans. Mm -hmm. So that's put a stress on the can market. Yeah. I mean, there's aluminum everywhere. And I, I, that was going to, I was going to segue into the packaging and I noticed on your website, you guys are in glass primarily. Um, Talk to me about that. Is, Is it, have you had any distributor? Oh, first of all, do you self-distribute or do you work with distributors? No, we, we, uh, we distribute primarily through uh, the network of Anheuser-Busch, dis- the distributors in Kansas and Missouri. Our main competitor in Kansas City is with the Miller Coors house. Sure. So <laughs> we're with the other one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and so has there been any pushback from the distributors saying, hey, look, we need to evolve in? Or it seems like your product fits well in the bottle. I think it does. Because uh, I, I, I would consider some of our loggers higher end, especially the Pilsner. Uh, that's not something you want to take to a high-end steakhouse and, and pop open a can uh, mm-hmm. that's typically served from a bottle in a, in a nice glass. I mean, I, they would like for us to have cans. I would too. I, I do think people would be more prone to buy our beer in a bottle than probably a, a typical English style craft brewers uh, pale ale or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I what I really think it would help us with is uh, we're pretty much precluded from selling beer at golf courses. Um, at, right, we're having meetings with our distributors right now, and because we're a German style brewery, we like to support Oktoberfest and other things that sort of uh, match with our our beer and our branding. Mm-hmm. And Hayes, Kansas has a large Oktoberfest, but a lot of a lot of places now just want to go to 16-ounce cans. It's just right. easier and and there's not any much waste. If you got volunteers handing out the beer or pouring stuff, it's just a lot easier to do. So uh, we get shut out of even events like that sometimes. Yep. Yeah. And, and so from what you just mentioned, it, it sounds to me like you guys are up at the craft pricing. I looked at your website and it was all lagers. It was variations of lagers. Right. About 85% lagers. Our second best selling beer is a, a Bavarian Hefeweizen. Okay. Yeah. And and so my question is, is, is I'm I'm seeing a, now I'm seeing a lot of breweries move into this low price lager. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's your product at all. No. No. <laughs> it's hard to do when you're importing malt and uh it takes us about five weeks to make our standard lager, a week of fermentation, four weeks of, of lagering. Yep. And so we need twice as many tanks, uh, twice as much cooling capacity, twice as much floor space to make that beer. So our beers are quite expensive. And mm-hmm. um, that is something long term. I would like to see us have the ability to, to sort of premiumize our, our pricing a little bit. And we are a little bit now, but certainly we, we don't try to compete with with that type of low cost uh, light lager that a lot of breweries are going to especially here in Kansas City a Mexican style adjunct lager has gotten very popular 
Yeah. So I think it's a testament to the lack of innovation and lack of owning what their what their true brewing style is uh, chasing this because at the end of the day even when you get up to the 100,000 barrel mark you're still light manufacturing yes and it, it, absolutely. in light manu- in, in light manufacturing you're you, you in manufacturing you win on volume or you win on price light manufacturing never wins on volume you have to win on price i've been saying that for a decade now yes and i I'm agree seeing, with you seeing these breweries now go in and, and really trying to it's a race to the bottom in my opinion, but it's um, I, I will, I will say just for, I, I do have some pessimism around the innovation in brewing. I have some pessimism around the distributor consolidation. Distributors are now cert- looking at a portfolio of 60 to hundred IPAs. They're looking at 60 to hundred loggers. They're like, look- it's tough for those guys to sell it. So where's the craft brewing industry going to innovate? particularly in wholesale is is what's going through my mind and and um so yeah that's a good question uh and certainly i think some innovations that have occurred and it's a small port of the market but athletic brewing with the non-alcoholic beers um the larger uh international brewers anheuser-busch and heineken i think have had good success with their uh na beers uh, I mean, I think that's one area you, you might see a lot of a lot of the true craft breweries that were, um, you know, started this movement 20, 30 years ago are now lar- much larger. Tip- a lot of them are owned by an international uh, brewing conglomerate and mm-hmm. they're really getting into the the seltzers. And I don't I think that's going to be, uh, again, like the light beer. I don't think you. You make a craft seltzer, it's going to be dominated by the large uh, uh, distributors, manufacturers who have uh, a national footprint. And that's sort of, I, I think people think of those as sort of a commodity. I like uh, White Claw or I like Truly, just like I like Pepsi or I like Coke. Right. And I don't think the person that drinks a seltzer is looking for a craft seltzer. It's flavored water and i just i don't think people are going to go there tell me if you think this is crazy steve but if i had a if i had it my way each craft brewery would make just one beer one style Mm -hmm. and they would try to make that style the best they can make it and then distribute it as far as, as as wide as possible almost I think the days of and and most breweries I speak to will talk about going from a portfolio of eight cores down to four and being comfortable with that. But I think it even needs to be even more narrow. I, I, I there is some truth to that. And when we started out, we were we had very few brands, and now we have five core brands. We just added one, and it's a India Pale Lager. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great beer. Uh, it it didn't sell, and we had especially our sales staff here. You know that that's the most popular craft beer style. We need to get in it, and sometimes it's good to have that to fill out a portfolio if you're uh, supplying a, a you know a lot a whole range of beers to a venue or someplace. But I said we're going to be competing against everybody right now if we mm-hmm. with that. Uh, and it's, it's, yeah, everybody drinks them, but it's also everybody, every brewery's got a, 
an IPA. So um, that really never took off, uh, even though I think the beer was great. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot of uh, truth to that. You, you need to know what you want to do. And, and we've tried to do that. It's, it's just, it's just that I think, especially with distributors, they are in the business of giving people what they want. And their first thought is, oh my gosh, somebody's really doing well with this beer. You need to sell that beer. Right. And it's hard to get people to try to develop something that everybody's not already drinking. And when we started, we basically were selling three beers on draft, uh, a Hellas Lager, a Munich-style brown lager, Dunkel, and a Hefeweizen. Mm-hmm. The Dunkel just blew up. I just I thought it would be popular, but it just blew up. It's it's still about 60 to 65% of our total beer sales. Mm-hmm. And I think it was different. So you just you just never know how consumers are going to uh, accept a brand or perceive it. And I think one thing that's a challenge for I our Pilsner and our Hellas Lager and our Hefebitzen are, are excellent. They're award-winning. Um, GABF, we won a medal at the Eurostar um, uh, contest in Germany this fall for our Doppelbach. But it, I think it's hard for retailers to, there's so many craft beers to put more than one or two handles of a craft brewer, local craft brewer on. It's sort of, I got to give everybody a, you know, a, a spot, except for maybe the really big dominant uh, local brewer. And that, that's a, that's a challenge to get people to think of us as more than just a one brand brown Dunkel lager brewer. It makes sense to me, though. The, the Dunkel is such a d- delicious malty beer. I'm sure yours is phenomenal. I also wrote a note here that your Hellas looks delicious on the website. <laughs> it's my favorite beer. Yeah. And yeah. The, cra- the crazy thing is no, almost nobody that works here drinks Dunkel. And yep. our, our brewers and, and pack hall people usually have a beer after their shift and they're all drinking Hellas or pills usually mm-hmm. or occasionally, whatever our seasonal is or our, our fest beer. But uh, yeah, it's one of those beers that you get known for and everybody that's, that's, that's our, that's one of the, the beer of ours that they drink. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Let's I'm curious about the, the layout you have in the, the brew house and the, tanks are your lagering tanks the horizontal or the so, vertical i wish they were they are not it uh, it was a compromise with um uh efficiency of mm-hmm. space usage so uh, we're uh we have a 30 barrel brew house we have 60 barrel fermenters and then we have 120 barrel lager tanks but they are flat bottom tanks with almost a one-to-one aspect ratio height to width so uh, you'd have approximately the same amount of surface area in contact with the yeast that you had a large lager tank in it, like an Anheuser-Busch brewery or a large German brewery. So you see those types of tanks often in in smaller or regional breweries in Germany. Um, They're not always uh, horizontal, but they have that low aspect ratio. So there's still a lot of surface area for the yeast during the lagering phase to stay in contact with the beer. Cause that's what the yeast is doing. It's cleaning up the, 
the beer flavors. The beer is fermented, but that's there's still flavor maturation going on. And uh, mm-hmm. we have a saying here, once you filter your beer, uh, all it does is get old. It never gets better. So mm-hmm. it's kind of the principle in, in lagering. Yeah. We have a few customers that have the horizontal tanks and they're using them for lagering. And they're also using it to make seltzer, as you said. Yeah. Because yeah. they can really pack tons and tons and tons of liquid in there. So it's a it's kind of a, a mix. Tell me about the publications that you wrote prior to opening the I saw I see you have a handbook and you have a couple other books that you wrote with the Master Brewers Association. How did how did those come right. about and, and where is your writing background from? Uh, I I had to do a lot of writing in my professional life, a lot of mm-hmm. report writing. And so I, I got a, because I took German, I got a bachelor of arts degree instead of bachelor of science. So I was required to take more uh, English and, and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. that was very helpful. It's something I'd hated to do when I was a student, but uh, it turned out to be very helpful. So I, a lot of it was about me wanting to understand how to make beer better. So I wrote about German brewing techniques, uh, fermentation flaws, uh, different things along along those lines. I also wrote some cultural pieces, uh, things like what happened to the corner bar, which was basically uh, how society changed once we all had private garages, automatic door openers, cars. And we went to, instead of going to the, walk into the neighborhood corner uh, location, we get in a car, drive to a, a chain national restaurant in a suburban parking lot, and you don't know anybody when you get there. But the two big publications, the first one was a handbook of basic brewing calculations, which uh, I wrote with the Master Brewers Association. Mm-hmm. And uh, that came out in 2003, I think. And it's it's still being sold. It's still a, um, a big seller. I'm uh, we have a, a German who was working here. He just quit to go to brewing school at VLB in Berlin. And that was one of the required texts, the handbook of basic brewing calculations for oh, that nice. class. So, but I had a lot of help from uh, a lot of brewers at Anheuser-Busch and every, everywhere to, to edit that, help me edit and, and uh, peer review it. The second one was a program that uh, Master Brewers had called the uh, Beer Steward Program. And it would would be comparable to the Cicerone program that Ray Daniels has. Uh, it's for servers primarily, but you understand beer styles, history of beer, uh, proper serving of beer, food pairings, and that. And that was the second book that I wrote with the Master Brewers Association. Do you know Jeremy Storton? I do not. He's a gentleman that has a podcast, and he also does a lot of writing. He's a level... Three Cicerone, he just passed like the hardest level or maybe level four. I'm not sure. He talks about that all the time, being a beer steward. That's his number one, um, number one beating stick. So I I probably will connect you two after. Okay. He's he's a great guy. Yeah. I mean, as a brewer, that's one of the frustrations. We spend all this time trying to make great beer and, and then it gets uh, sold to a distributor or a retailer, uh, mm-hmm. whoever, 
and you just don't know how they're going to take care of it. And beer is such a, a wonderful and still delicate uh, beverage. And if you treat it like you would wine with, we use, you know, style appropriate glassware here. And if the glass is clean and it sparkles and you take the time to put a nice head on it, you can't serve any other beverage except maybe a, a, a latte coffee or whatever it is, you know, with a nice creamy crown of, of foam that looks so delicious. And the whole routine, if you go to Germany and somebody pours a Hefeweizen, for example, at your table, you just elevates the experience to this special thing or gosh, the server just took all this time to pour this great beer and it looks beautiful and it's in a great glass. And yep. sometimes uh, beer gets just treated as a, as a can of pasteurized soup. And I, right, I just right. hate to see that. <laughs> That's a funny analogy, but I, I agree with you. Certainly the more beer specific spots like the bottle shops and the craft beer gastropubs take take care of it but yes on the majority on the wide scale it is treated like a can of or even the a place with a bunch of tap lines may not take that much care of cleaning those lines and yeah. appropriate glassware and appropriate temperature and yeah usually the challenge if you have a large multi-tap uh tavern is just turning the beer over fast enough because mm -hmm. uh, you know beer sits around it doesn't get get better and that's really the challenge and sometimes and this this is a frustration for me because like i said our goal is to make uh, authentic tasting beer and then serve it at the same level of freshness you get in germany and i i really feel that our beers are equal character and quality as an import and, and they are fresh and sometimes there's a perception that that's it's got to be better beer because it's german and they make great beers but when you've got a beer that is a year old before it gets to your store or um, your your tap room it just doesn't have the same character and freshness that right that it should have no i totally agree I totally agree that the the date and the the shelf life of of the beer should be considered, and um, any any old beer needs to be removed because it's just a reflection of your brand and right. your attention to detail. And it's just if you have ever opened up a old tasting or skunky beer, it, it's all it takes is one. Yes, to really burn your burn your palate. Well, we like we, we have a tasting panel every week and we we sort of uh, shelf stability test our beer uh, aging test, to see how the flavor uh, develops, comparing different ages of beer. But we also like to compare our beer to uh, other commercial brands. Usually we're, we're using a domestic brewer because it's hard to get a fresh German beer. Uh, luckily, Jurgen, my partner, was in Germany over Christmas. So we, he just brought, he always has to bring back beer if he goes over there. So then we have a chance to taste our beer against some fresh German examples of styles that we make. And that's always a, a, a great opportunity. Yep. Awesome. So let's, let's uh, wrap this, this show up with a, what's your outlook of 2022? I think it's going to be uh, challenging. Uh, we lost 
quite a bit of sales in 2020, made up about half of that loss last year. I'm hoping we'll get back to 2019 levels this year. I just don't know. Uh, it appears I've been talking to our distributors that business is slow right now. I think it just all, a lot of it, I hate to keep bringing COVID up in every conversation, but it is such a, a factor. So uh, I'm hoping we can get back to 2019 levels. So mm -hmm. probably a, a 10% increase in our sales over last year. Mm -hmm. and, but our, and how, our sales how to bars and restaurants is what's hurting us. Uh, our off-premise sales to bar um, liquor stores and grocery stores is fine. It's the, the stuff that draft beer is still challenging. Right. And I'm seeing that across the whole country. How many barrels will y'all produce this year? So we, we produced 16,500 in 2019. Uh, we did just over 14,000. This year, I'm hoping we get over uh, 15 and back to 16,000 at the best. Yeah. That explains the two containers a month. Yeah. Of, of malt. That's huge. That's that, that. Those are some impressive numbers there. Well, sounds great, Steve. I really appreciate you joining us on True Craft Podcast. It's great to hear your story and the story of Kansas City beer. I'm, I'm excited. All right. Well, thank you. I always enjoy talking about beer. So uh, it was a pleasure on, on my part. Go Chiefs. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> All right. You have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, thank you for listening to this episode of True Craft Podcast. Links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. The show is produced by Josh Barnhart and sponsored by Small Batch Standard. Small Batch Standard is the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax compliance, and growth consulting. Visit SB Standard today to learn more and request a discovery call with the team. Peace out.